Welcome to the Exalt Podcast. My name is Christopher Shagnon. And I'm Sophia Hagalani-Elbov. For any of you out there that were paying attention to some of the wider activities of Exalt, you will recognize the guests that I am about to introduce. Uh, this month, we are extremely excited to be joined by Geddes Lesutis, who joined us for a launch of his most recent book. Today is going to be really exciting because we are going to get to talk further and get deeper. I don't want to take up too much of the floor because I am so excited to get into this and talk about some of these topics that lie ahead of us. So Geddes, would you like to tell us who you are and what you do? Hi, Sophia. Sure. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on this podcast, both you and Christopher. And I guess normally I present myself as a political geographer. Uh, I've never studied geography. I always studied politics. And at the end of my PhD degree, I realized that I was more interested in material side of politics, materiality of politics, and kind of material relations, how political relations express in space and landscape and across different topographies. So currently I'm based at the University of Amsterdam. And uh, broadly speaking, my work explores social and political relations of power, inequality, capital, and resistance. And I'm particularly interested in how these relations are mediated contingently across topographies of everyday life, and specifically in sub-Saharan Africa, that I, I explore these questions in context of Kenya and Mozambique. Well, that's okay. Everybody's a geographer, right? I mean, that's one of the best things about geography. I actually did my master's in geography and um, yeah, geography is such a fantastic subject that really like gets into some of those super important questions. So I'm really glad to hear that uh, even though you did your training in the political science side, you migrated to realize that everybody is a geographer. That's my two little sets. I love geography. <laughs> yeah, in some way or another. I mean, I wish ideally we wouldn't have to fit us ourselves into a discipline per se, uh, so, but I think geography is where I feel most comfortable, but ideally, I, yeah, I like to leave it behind because in, the, in a way in critical social sciences, we are all post-disciplinary, I think. So uh, let's leave it like that, I guess. I, I totally, totally agree with you on that one. As somebody who's wandered across a few different disciplines myself before kind of settling into global development studies, but, you know, something I want to ask to start out, um, and I felt it was really interesting because, of course, you know, I, I got to uh, virtually attend the book launch. And it was really interesting. And you're talking about your your work in Mozambique and like how you you learned Portuguese for your research there and to to be able to uh, connect with people even better. So, I mean, how did you come to focus on Mozambique? Well, an honest answer is that it was a complete coincidence. Uh, I ended up going to Mozambique when I was doing my master's. Uh, as one of the requirements of the master's program was that I had to do an internship with a local business that was based in the town where I was doing my master's. It's a very small town in mid-Wales called Aberystwyth. And it just so happened that there was a consultancy, while it's still functioning, it's still there, uh, uh, that was working on food security issues in sub-Saharan Africa. 
and I was working with them, just helping with some Excel sheets and writing my master's dissertation. And it, it's actually quite a long story, so I don't know like how much time we have to talk about it. But I was doing interdisciplinary master's on food and water security. And my focus was on po political side of things, on politics. And I was, but I still had to write something related to food security. And I was just sort of doing research quite manically, thinking that I cannot find a topic that is actually interesting to me and that I can somehow bring food security to the front of it. And then at the time, Mozambique was implementing a lot of investments in biodiesel. There was like this kind of hype about Jatropha trees. And I somehow, I don't know how I came across it. And then that I kind of, that was the first time where I learned what land grabbing meant and what green land grabbing meant. And then I started thinking about that subject uh, and I was reading a number of different reports on the issue. Um, and I was going to write my master's dissertation. And uh, when the director uh, of the consultancy asked me what I was doing for my dissertation. I told him what my project was. And then he asked me, so when are you going to Mozambique? And I said that I wasn't going to go because I was only doing a master's dissertation and my research was going to be based on reports. And uh, the director, now late uh, Ian Robinson, he, he found that unacceptable that I could do an entire master's dissertation on the country without ever going there. So he was very kind and I guess he saw something in me because he sponsored my fieldwork trip to Mozambique for two months. So which I'm still very thankful for that opportunity because that was kind of the first step in my academic career because I realized how exciting, interesting, challenging it was to undertake empirical research on the ground and what it meant to to actually study this thing called Africa in real life, going to those places uh, like Mozambique. Um, and that's how I ended up going there. And I found it, it really moved me in a way that was the first time when I saw things that I was reading about in textbooks and academic articles. It was the first time when I saw some of them in real life in front of me not only being confirmed, but also being challenged in quite profound and interesting ways. And I wanted to explore that much further. But one of the main frustrations that I had was that I didn't speak Portuguese and I had to work with a language assistant. And I remember very, very vividly that moment, although now at this point it was almost 10 years ago, when I was leaving Mozambique after those two months, I had made myself a promise that if I ever go back, I will learn Portuguese and I will do a better research than what I did for my master's. So that's a very long answer to your question. How did I end up going there uh, and then going back again? So the first time was a co complete coincidence, just a sequence of events. And when I went back, it was deliberate and kind of something that I wanted to explore in much more detail. Love that. I mean, sometimes this research stuff, like it does kind of almost happen, you know, by accident or a series of cascading coincidences. I mean, I know that if you'd asked me, well, I guess I did come to Finland the first time now, nine years ago. I was going to say if you asked me 10 years ago, but I suppose it was already in the works then. But let's go back a little further. If you'd asked me 
11 years ago. If I was going to base my life and my research around Finland, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't have even have had the conception that that would have been an option. So, you know, I, I definitely appreciate you giving some insight into that process, um, because I know if we have younger researchers listening, sometimes it can feel like the world is such a big place and like, oh, where am I ever going to find my spot? But it does it does come to you sometimes, whether you expect it to or not. So the second time you said that you went back to Mozambique and it was quite deliberate. Can you tell us a bit about what got you aware of and into those questions that you really explore in the book? And of course, tell our listeners what those questions are, please. Absolutely. Uh, so the, the main question that I explore in the book is this relationship between, uh, well, what we call development, progress, investments on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, vulnerable groups of people that are officially supposed to benefit from these processes, but in the majority of cases do not. So it, it is this contradiction between modernity, development, progress, and marginalization, violence, exclusion on the other hand. This relationship is what interests me in the book. And the first time it happened, uh, when I started thinking about it in the context of Mozambique, was then I was visiting it for the first time uh, in 2013. And at the time, there was a lot of talk about uh, development that was going to be brought by investments in natural resource industries, specifically coal mining. Uh, and uh, for, for instance, the capital city of Maputo was booming with... Uh, engineers, expats, people working in the mines, traveling back and forth from Tet to the capital. And I remember it was uh, Friday evening, I went to, to a bar to have, to have a few drinks and I bumped into two Brazilian engineers who were working in the mines in, in Tet. And we were chatting and they told me as an anecdote, as an interesting story to tell about uh, local people in Tet, whom they called peasants, and they told me the story about them blocking the railway that was transporting coal from, from Tet to Beira and then further into trans global commodity markets. And they, they were not able to tell much beyond that. They were just kind of saying that uh, in a quite a derogatory way that people are resisting development, that people do not know what's good for them, and they just want to live in the way that they are used to. Um, and of course, I kind of knew that that was definitely not the case, that people have uh, their understandings and politics and projects that are much more complex than uh, some people would like to believe. And that's when I started exploring the story. I wanted, it really intrigued me because that story of peasants blocking the railway was very overshadowed by everything else what was going, by both the national government of Mozambique, by expats, by middle-class Mozambicans in Maputo who were excited about the prospects of development. And I wanted to know more what actually happens to these people who in the midst of these developments actually have no other choice but to resort to such measures as blocking the railway to be heard and to make a point about how these developments are affecting them and their everyday lives. And uh, when I decided to do a PhD, I, 
it was I knew that I wanted to explore this question. And of course, in the, in the beginning, the question was much more empirical. I just wanted to know what happens to these people uh, who are displaced, dispossessed, resettled and ignored. Um, and with time, the question became much more theoretical, explore, exploring relation between the global world order dominated by extractive capital accumulation and vulnerable lives that are dispossessed, but at the same time resist these processes. And then I ask what are possibilities and impossibilities of effective resistance and whether there is space for effective change that would somehow mediate uh, the hardships of people who are left aside uh, of development, what is perceived as development. I mean, this is so fascinating and as well so, I guess, understandable, like you, you paint a very vivid picture with this and this this moment of bumping into these engineers. I, I think for people who have lived in uh, quote unquote developing countries in the past or something like that, I think it's very easy to picture these types of people, the kind of urban middle class and this, uh, the look at people in the provinces as peasants and don't know what's good for them. So I, I really, really appreciate you bringing this up and, and striking that picture for us. But, you know, when you're getting into this, like this is a very sensitive thing. Obviously, these people are putting their lives or communities on the line to be able to stand up to government forces, to global capital forces. And it's got to be hard for them to trust people. How, how are you able to, to connect with people and, and be able to get in there and get this information and, and, of course, share with them? That's a great question. Before I go into the answer to this specific question, I just would like to emphasize that this dichotomy between Western rationality and then irrationality of rural communities is not only between expats and so-called peasants. It is, it's also very vivid in the context of Mozambique itself, where... Uh, middle classes, working classes in, in, uh, in the city of Maputo, they would also very much reproduce the same narrative that these people don't know what's good for them. And a very good example of this is that, I mean, I was in Mozambique for a year and a half, and eventually I made friends with local Mozambicans, and most of them would never consider going to Tet or Kateme to places where I went. And some of them thought I was completely, well, in some way crazy spending time there and living there because for them it was completely unacceptable to kind of mix between these different spaces. So the kind of the class issue that of course is mediated by race and ethnicity in Mozambique is very complex and it's kind of plays out in the local context, even without so-called expats. Um, and in that context, uh, uh, of course you have the divide and I mean, Mozambique as mo most people will know is a massive country and the, 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 there are very not noticeable difference and differences and divisions between uh, Southern, Central and Northern Mo Mozambique. On the other hand, you can talk about Maputo uh, and then the rest of the country that ex is experiences quite different in, in some ways, uh, social and po political problems and issues. So in that context, 
outsiders have, of course, seen uh, with suspicion and understandably so. So it is not easy to, to find a way to connect to people and kind of earn that trust. Uh, and the, from my experience in both Mozambique and Kenya, you have to be extremely patient and you cannot be too abrupt or push for things, even if you have a timeline that you have to adhere to. And I worked with the local NGOs. I first started uh, collaborating with them, trying to understand their work. And then I asked them to introduce me to local community, to the leaders of those communities, introduce what I was uh, interested in, what kind of research I wanted to carry out. And uh, I think as with anything in life, it depends a bit on luck, what kind of people you meet and how open and willing they are to help you and also to learn from you, um, as well as, of course, help you immensely. And uh, my fieldwork research and by extension, my book wouldn't have happened if I hadn't met my fieldwork assistant. Uh, I'll probably leave his name anonymous just in case, uh, but he was uh, he himself happened to be from the village that was completely resettled, and he was living in a new resettlement site with his family, uh, and I was introduced to him by a person that I knew in this organization that I was working with, and we had natural chemistry of friendship that we clicked immediately. And he was uh, very interested in my work and why I wanted to, to explore the questions that I wanted to explore, why I wanted to learn more about Kateme, because for him it was interesting why somebody who has no connection to Mozambique or to Portugal or to Brazil would come and study this uh, place that is very kind of remote and not a key node of globalization. Why would they want to do that? Um, and we had a wonderful collaboration for four months. I was living with his family. Um, and I think we learned a lot from each other. And uh, with building this friendship, I was able to meet other people in the community. And he was very well respected in the community. And I think people thought that if he was trusting me, that they should also trust me because he wouldn't trust uh, a bad person. Um, yeah, so that mediated the tensions to, to a large extent. It didn't mediate all the tensions, of course, because that's just inevitable. In a post-colony like Mozambique, being white and relatively affluent is immediately identified as a possibility of uh, some sort of assistance, whether financially or in the form of handouts. On the one hand, and on the other hand, in TED, white men like myself were also associated with engineers from either Brazil or Australia. Uh, so there were, of course, a lot of misunderstandings. But uh, to, to answer your question, how do you mediate access to these places? Is It's key to build relationships of trust with several individuals who will then facilitate uh, easier access, not easy access, but easier access to sites of one's research interests. Getting those local connections um, really can be very important. I mean, obviously, my research plays out in a very different situation since, as everybody knows, I'm, I do my research in Finland. But even 
in Finland, um, getting kind of those like insiders and developing those relationships is really important. And I'm so heartened to hear that like in this modern era of like busy and deadlines and research schedules and, oh, I have three months to get in and out and do everything. I'm really like heartened to hear that there are people that are still finding like the space to do kind of these longer stints of fieldwork, because I think that it's so vital to really being able to actually understand what's happening in place. I mean, even in a year and a half or a year and a half plus obviously other visits, as you told us in your master's, but even in that space of time, I mean, it's scratching the surface, but of course you get a lot there. But I mean, I've been now nine years in Finland and I still feel like the country is like unfolding in front of me. It's like an onion. And I think sometimes the more I learn, the less I know, which is problem with life. But you said something in this last description that like really I just I got literal chills as you said it. And I'm hoping that you can um, talk a bit more about this and maybe talk a little bit about the idea of precarity, which comes through very strongly in your book. You said that your trusted research partner was in a resettlement community that the entire community had gotten resettled and like I said just chills through my body like I can't even imagine like an entire live environment landscape everything just completely resettled so could you tell us a little bit about that absolutely I mean as you're asking me this question I remember one specific moment uh, during my field work then this question became so glaring, visible and painful. And it was when we went back to the area where the village used to be, which is now part of the mining concession. Just to give a context, this Brazilian company Valley, it got over uh, 6,000 hectares of land for its mining concession. And then it resettled uh, four different villages over 10,000 people. And I was working on one specific village called Shipanga. Um, and within the first few months of being in the area, I started realizing that actually the area where Shipanga used to be was still not being ex excavated. It was part of the mining concession, but the mining was still not taking place. And then I learned that uh, people were still going back to the area to work on the land that they had. And it was mostly young men, artisanal brick makers that were making uh, bricks in the area because the soil was kind of very appropriate for that kind of livelihood activity. And then I convinced my fieldwork assistant that we <laughs> he could take me there to see what was happening, to talk to the people because, well, I have to mention that it's part of the mining concession, so it's a private area and going there kind of constitutes trespassing. And when we went there, I was with him and we were walking through this area, which to me didn't mean anything. It was just, well, a piece of land. And my fieldwork assistant, as we were talk, walking through, through the area, he kept, kept telling me where, what kind of buildings used to be and where he said, like, this was the place where we had the church. This was the place where we had a school. And there were a few places where you could still see foundations of housing, uh, but only that. And it was the moment when I saw tears in his eyes because he was talking about the village where his parents grew up, where he himself grew up, where he had his children that was completely erased 
to give space for international mining investors. And uh, it's really difficult to articulate those moments in the in fieldwork, then it becomes not so much uh, a research question or a story you want to tell, but the feeling that you have, then you connect with the people and the place, and you somewhat understand their pain because you are friends with them and you see how incredibly traumatic these processes are, that it's not just, it cannot be simply about taking a village from one place to another and resettling it as a way of doing development or giving better life to people. It's actually a profoundly damaging process that cuts so deeply into people's lives and that's why I chose to tell the story about precarity, about this violence being done to people, not in the in the most obvious way where it's by one agent on, an, on another, but in the, this violence that manifests and is expressed in different ways that are sometimes very difficult to see. But when you spend time in these places, you actually, this violence is very palpable or the effects of this violence are very palpable. I mean, that is, that is a visceral description. And I mean, you know, this, this whole thing of forced migration um is in this violence and you can feel how it is generational in its way this is not a trauma that is just one like one period of time it is something that's taking away a history and it really like you know i'm I, i'm getting chills thinking about it and i can completely see why people would be so upset and so angry and feeling like they had perhaps no other choice or recourse but to resist. And so like with this, I, I'm really curious to hear more about this resistance because you were talking about like the possibilities and impossibilities of, you know, like what's effective and what's not effective. So I, what do you, what do you mind telling us more about like what these people were doing after having gone through such a traumatic thing and still seeing it there so close to them every day? Absolutely. So it's one of the key tensions that I grapple with in the book. Um, and the tension is what can we and what should we call resistance and what is mere coping and survival? Uh, and I'm afraid I still don't have a definite answer to that question because I mean that the answer in itself is so politically charged and it's so important and it's, it depends on who you ask and on whose, whose behalf you decide to answer that question. And I think there are two ways of approaching this kind of schematically. I think in the context of resettlement, dispossession and continuing violence in both grotesque and disguised ways, I think coping and choosing to survive that, rebuild your life elsewhere, despite the trauma, of all these processes, still continuing living, having family, having life plans, no matter how difficult they might be to achieve. That, of course, in itself is a form of, well, not giving up and not being kind of undone and erased by extractivism. Because, I mean, from the point of view of capital, these people do not matter. They are completely surplus and excess to what generates surplus value, right? So not giving up and living in spite of 
this violence is a form of resistance in, and in some ways. But then the question that I ask in the book is that we as academics, as intellectuals, we have to be very careful not to fetishize this and do not in any way glorify this resistance. And that's why I kind of take a step back and I'm very reluctant to call it resistance. And I say that it's coping with precarity, with extreme forms of precarity, but the resistance, effective resistance would imply some kind of change in the regime, in the kind of in the space that makes you surplus, that makes you abandoned, not necessary, not needed. That's kind of, a, I think, would be the ultimate goal of resistance, kind of changing that a little bit, like crafting a space for yourself where you are allowed to have a more livable life. And in places like Katem and Tet, unfortunately, we don't see that because when there's communal forms of resistance, like in the case of the blockade of the railway, there was very clear signal from the state that sent rapid police intervention forces that immediately cr crushed down the protest. And they resorted to direct forms of violence to intimidate people, signaling that it's, it will not be allowed. And uh, following that direct violence from the state, and then following this, uh, of course, a backside story to this, the, the conflict between Renamo and Frelimo that emerged a few years after that, that made any kind of protest even more difficult because it would have been immediately associated as a form of like something to do with the ongoing conflict between the two political parties. These kind of forms of open resistance became completely unviable and people could not do it anymore because they were literally scared for their lives. Um, so to, to me, kind of the impossibilities of resistance are much more clear than actual possibilities because even, even if people survive and they cope with the violence being done to them, it's a life characterized by extreme hardship and, uh, and everyday struggle. And they themselves do not describe that as a form of some kind of glorified fet fet resistance. To them, it's just mere survival and making ends meet in a, in a world that renders one, well, unable to achieve anything else because the context that the, the space of extractivism of state violence of so-called development just doesn't allow people to contest it in productive ways um, and this was then this was my kind of conclusion that I presented in the book that the possibilities of resistance are there but they are never guaranteed and actually and a lot of the times they are undone by the violence of, of space and the state. Uh, and this was the narrative that the people that I was working with chose on multiple occasions when I was talking to them, because this was their story that they wanted me to tell to others that actually they were just coping rather than effectively resisting what was happening to them. But of course, this is such a complex question as well as philosophical question. And then if you ask different scholars, they will have very different opinions about it. Um, 
so as I said myself, I, I still think about this question a lot. It comes out in other research contexts, and it's perhaps something that I will be thinking about for a long time, um, because some questions, problems can never be solved. And I think they also, there's a temporal dimension to it, that in some moments or some periods of time, some possibilities might be widely overdone and erased, but then when circumstances change, both locally and globally, then the opportunities of politicization might emerge. And uh, it's not up to me or other academics to decide or kind of manifest that where that's going to happen, because in terms of bigger picture and where the struggle will emerge and where effective strategies might occur is down to the people themselves who are implicated in these processes. And uh, I sometimes feel quite useless observing them, knowing that I myself have very little role to play in these processes. Well, of course, then we can talk about, I mean, Antonio Gramsci's work and uh, the roles of organic intellectuals and what role they have to play, because of course they do. But most of the time, I feel we're just observing. I think that that's a really important point that you are bringing forward here is, and I do think that sometimes in research, it can be, you know, a fetishized, like, oh, look, it's fitting neatly into this box of resistance to extractivism or this or that, or, oh, this meets up so nicely with this theory. I'm going to totally use this example. And I, I really appreciate that you are bringing forward quite clearly, you know, these are this is lived experience. These are people's lives. They're not necessarily waking up in the morning and thinking, ooh, how can I resist extractivism today? They're thinking about, you know, okay, how do I how do I live today to live tomorrow, to live the next day? And um, I think that it's really important in when we are as researchers, especially Mike, I know for myself, you know, coming from the global north and as I've disclaimed a lot, you know, I'm not necessarily going into the global south per se and doing this research, but anywhere, you know, as a researcher, it's so important to come in and like try to see, you know, the stories that the people want to be told rather than trying to impose our theories onto the landscape. Absolutely. And I think one of the main things that I learned through this was not avoiding tension but accepting tension as intellectually productive uh, way forward, because we do have this tendency, especially I think as younger researchers, when we are doing our PhDs, we have this anxiety to make the world fit into a neat theoretical framework. And then of course, the way your research unfolds in front of you, I mean, it shatters everything, you know, you, you might have and then you have, you're left by yourself to pick up the pieces and it's very tempting to kind of collect them in a way that makes sense to, you know, what is already kind of established forms of knowledge, but it's much more productive, albeit, of course, very difficult to, to try to embrace that kind of form of like shattering and uncertainty and forms of radical unknowability that you can never know for sure, you can never be certain. And as a result, you have to be very modest with the claims that you make. I think we can still make interesting claims about the world and, and you know, the, the, the research questions that we want to choose, but I think this modesty and being humble about 
what we are dealing with, with and what, what we are operating with, I think it should not be disavowed in any sense. And I'm very thankful to feminist critical research and queer research that taught me that, that it's okay to embrace that, that this kind of objective view from nowhere, which is a white man's knowledge is actually very limiting. And I, I wish I knew this earlier. I wish I knew this when I was, you know, uh, an undergraduate student. So not to completely jump around, but I have a burning question that I was hoping that you would tell a little bit more about. Um, in the book, you use a very particular language to talk about these situations, specifically precarity. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about like why you chose that particular language and what that means within this context. Thank you, Sophia, for this question. Um, so I chose the, the language of precarity for two main reasons. Uh, first of all, what do I mean by precarity? So my reading of precarity comes from Judith Butler's work, who at this point as well, Rockstar Post-Structuralism. And she builds this very convincing account, at least to me, how to understand the politics of everyday life. And these politics are based on the following, that all of us inevitably, indelibly are vulnerable to violence from another, that we can all be injured, uh, hurt, abandoned, but at the same time, we are also dependent on the other to live and to flourish and to have a livable, good life. And the way this relation is mediated in a society, it gives basis and form to precarity, which is a political relation, which is not an ontological relation, but it's a relation that is mediated by different social, economic, and political relations, as a result of which some people are exposed to extreme forms of precarity, and other people face very little of that precarity or no precarity at all because they are very prosperous, secure, um, and relatively satisfied in their lives. So for me, it's interesting to explore this mediation of something that is inevitable ontological condition of life and how it's mediated by power and how we connect with one another, both individually and also collectively. And when we look further into the work, philosophical work on precarity, what is interesting for me is this tension that emerges when we talk about precarity within capitalism, precarity within labor relations, or precarity in liberal democracies, where there's this tension in this very thing that both causes harm and gives us hope. And that's what capitalism promises us, a good life. That we think that if we do certain things, if we achieve certain things, it will give us a better life. And we kind of strive for that. But this very hope is a form of violence done to us because to many of, of the people in the world, these goals are unachievable. It's just kind of a bourgeoisie dream world that we can, most of us cannot achieve. And Lauren Berland, for example, calls this cruel optimism, that a lot of people strive for this without actual possibility of achieving what is promised by capitalism. So this tension is interesting how it plays out in different contexts, in different times and places. And I chose this language 
in the context of my research, because I think it's more productive to kind of show these multiple tensions that exist within spaces of extractivism than other languages being used. For example, surplus populations. I mean, if we think about Karl Marx, of course, or if we think about Sasia Saskin and expulsed populations, wasted populations, if we think about Mike Davis' work, I mean, those languages are incredibly productive in showing structural relations in the world and how some people are, well, dispossessed from possibilities of a livable life. But to me, they end there because they don't tell like kind of these nuances of how people are both expulsed and at the same drawn back to this very mechanism that dispossesses them. And I think here I have to give an empirical example uh, that I haven't mentioned yet, but I think it illustrates this dynamic very well, that in spite of all the violence and everyday suffering that dispossessed people experience in Katema, in this resettled village that I'm talking about, they still think and believe that being given a job in the extractive industry, working in the mines, is the sole pathway to a better life that that's what would, having a stable income working in the mine would kind of solve the problems. And then in this sense, this kind of employment, given some little access to kind of capitalist modernity and forms of development justifies the violence being done to them. And that's where for me, effective resistance becomes completely undone because it's impossible to think beyond that. How, like, so it's not the case of, uh, you know, Mexican Zapatistas movement that challenges, really, really profoundly challenges extractivist modes of development, but instead accepts that as the sole, like the only pathway to a better tomorrow. And of course, people who are interested in this, like, will have to read my book because they are much more eloquent and kind of explaining these tensions, but for now, I hope it will suffice as an answer to your question. This is such a huge thing. And I mean, thank you for that. You know, something that really stood out to me is when you're talking about how, you know, for some people, this sort of path to prosperity runs through the mind, uh, how this sort of vision is, like, you know, it's, it's the only thing with the current system that they can see. Uh, so I imagine with this sort of, I mean, violence and precarity, there must be some significant tensions between people who are coming from this point of survival. And I mean, I suppose everyone's coming from a point of survival, but approaching it in perhaps radically different ways. So I, I was kind of curious to ask about, like, are there these tensions and like, how do they express themselves uh, in, in this context? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, that's a great question. I think a very vivid tension is between resettled communities themselves and then both national and global non-governmental organizations that work on capacitating these people to advocate for themselves uh, and kind of their forms of development and visions that they might have. And I witnessed that myself that some, I mean, I, I don't want to mention any names because I think it's better that way, but I think some activists focus on um, 
well, green energy development, green economy, and try to push this narrative of environmental and sustainability, which I, of course, support, and I really understand the rationale behind. And I saw some of those events taking place in, 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 in Mozambique as well, and some of these agencies working there. But for people on the ground, I think it comes down to this, that they don't have time and resources and the means to think about what's going to happen 50 years from now and further down the line, because the immediate means of survival are much more pressing. And as a result, having a job, a regularly paid job in the mine, no matter the position, whether it's land cleaning works, the truck driver, or is seen as something that can immediately benefit one's life economically. And that's where the tension kind of comes from because people might sit in those meetings and they might accept some of the things that NGOs are working on, but in their everyday life, they have no choice but kind of go against that because that's where a possibility of a better life might come from. So I think that's one interesting thing to think about between the kind of bigger agendas of social and environmental justice and then everyday social reproduction strategies that people have to think about. Because and I'm not saying that like this is some form of criticism against them. It's just that it's something that we have to acknowledge. And I mean, I would be doing the same if, you know, if I was in their position. And of course, some of them understand very well that there are different forms of energy and that there are alternatives, but they, well, it's just kind of unthinkable in that context. So, I mean, that's what one of the interesting tensions to think about. I'm so glad that you highlighted that tension because that is something that, you know, in other conversations we've also had come up is that it's, you know, it's a tall task to ask, you know, local communities who are literally, you know, dealing with the day-to-day tensions of like continuing to survive, asking them to deal with some of these, frankly, more like high-minded goals for the world. You know, it's a lot to put on the shoulders of people who are literally trying to cope. And it is a real tension. And so I'm I'm so glad that you you brought this one up because I think that it's one that I've seen and I find uh, very interesting and, you know, problematic because it's a lot of pressure to ask people who are literally coping with the, their day-to-day existence to think about some of these more like, like broader level agendas. We actually had a really interesting conversation about this um, because these situations, they aren't just black and white. It's not mine bad, alternative energy good, and like, oh, it's so easy. We can solve this problem so easily. Um, We actually had a really good conversation about some of the gray areas in like this extractivism and resistance to extractivism with Aili Puhala, which I highly recommend that if people are interested in this, um, this tension that can arise, you know, both with these communities and those who are coming in to, quote, help, and also within communities itself when they're interacting with extractivist um, entities, because it's it's not always so easy to just level judgment against people who are in these situations who end up, you know, allying with the extractivist entities for whatever reason. Like it doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad or that they're like 
trying to undermine kind of this broader global agenda. So um, we'll link to that down in the show notes, but I definitely recommend that if people are interested in that, that they also check out that conversation. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's why I very deliberately choose to talk about possibilities and impossibilities, like what is actually possible and viable and doable in a specific context. And for me, it has to do with kind of these larger constellations of state strategies of development, of global commodity markets, of uh, various pro ongoing processes and what they allow or disallow. And it's not about people being inherently against one thing or another. It's just what makes sense in a specific time and place at a specific time. Uh, so I uh, appreciate your reflections, Sophia, because I also reflect on that through this language of possibility and possibility and well, circumstances. I completely agree, and I really find this framing of possibilities and impossibilities to be so interesting, and also really highlighting the uniqueness of each situation, but at the same time being able to tie together uh, some similarities while also recognizing how different places are and different situations are. But I know we could keep going on about this. We do want to leave the listeners some things to read in your book. So at the end of every conversation, we like to end with a question. So at the end of every podcast, we like to ask the question. It's sort of a call to action for our listeners. They hear this. They're really interested. They want to do something. It could be learning something. It could be doing something in their lives. So for the people at home, uh, is there anything that you could recommend that they do to, to learn more or do something? Oh, wow. <laughs> Great question. <laughs> It's one of the things that I tell my students, I think that I encourage them to resist any kind of simple explanation or simple truth. I say that any answer has a coma and a but or however. And that's, I think that's what I would say that kind of do not accept any kind of explanation as, as the explanation, that there's always multiple truths in multiple times and contexts and they might change. So I think it's important to stay alert to the possibility of either substantial or small revision of what might have been considered as the answer that it might change. And of course, I mean, I don't want to sound banal in the time of post-truths and Trumpism. I do not mean that in, in that sense about alternative facts. No, I just mean kind of always allowing space for a nuance that might challenge one's truth, truth about oneself. I think we do like, we are conditioned to kind of accept linear narratives about ourselves and about the world. But what is interesting for me is actually allow the tension and contradiction within ourselves and the world to emerge and kind of embrace that contradiction to an extent that it's politically productive. Because of course, we cannot just be all about contradictions. We also have to pick sides and choose sides. 
in kind of in the in the larger context of things, whether it's class struggle or whether it's you know Russia's invasion in Ukraine. So I think that would be my my answer. That is such an amazing answer to the question, and I can only imagine that um, your students are very lucky to be getting such grounded advice early in their careers because that is so so true. Like I I I always. Be suspicious if something is presented too simply, you know, in terms of like there being kind of a right and a wrong or there's always that gray area and that nuance. So I really appreciate the answer that you gave. Well, as sad as it is to have to say goodbye, because I feel like we've just barely started to scratch the surface of this uh, really, really rich work that you've done in Mozambique, um, we will put a link to the book down in the show notes. Um, So I definitely encourage people, I've read through um, some big parts of the book, and it's just, it's not only is it incredibly interesting and rich field work. It's also very engagingly written and it's a quick read, which is always a super plus for academic research. If our listeners are interested to connect with you, is there anywhere that they can find you? Uh, yes, you can find me on Twitter and the Twitter handle is Gedeminasle. And just recently I created a website, which is www.mynameandsurname.com. So getminaslasutis.com. So just my name and surname. And there you can find about my current research projects, past research projects, and something that I'm working on uh, and will be working on in the future, which is queer theory and queer Marxism. I'm branching out a little bit. So you can, yeah. And all my outputs are there. All the talks are there. So that's the best place to keep up with what I'm thinking about and working on. Well, fantastic. We will make sure to link that down in the show notes. So you heard that, everybody. If you want to hear more, check out both follow on Twitter and check out that website. Thank you so much. It's been such a fantastic conversation and, you know, look forward to uh, talking with you more in the future and and seeing more of uh, of your work and research as it's coming out. Absolutely. I'm really excited to see some of these new avenues that you teased right at the end. So thank you once again for not only joining us for the book launch and sharing your work with us in that way, but then also coming on the podcast and giving us a little deeper insight. Thank you, Sophie and Chris. It was a real pleasure to be here today and I really enjoyed the conversation and I hope that we keep talking in the future in some way or another. Thank you again to Geddes Lasutis for coming on and having such a wonderful conversation with us. Please join us next month when we're going to be talking with Tim Oakes about the impact of massive infrastructure developments on societies in China and beyond. From the sunny skies, but still snowy woods of Helsinki, Finland, I am Christopher Shagnon. On behalf of Sophia Hagel and Yalbov, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Oh,